morning. Welcome to our service this morning. If you're joining live stream, and I thank you that you're here in present person. That's great. Uh, I just want to mention a couple of things here. I, I kind of noticed we were kind of getting out of a groove. You know, ever since we had this COVID pandemic, the church shifted gears. Now we got to get back to, oh, we're going to plan an event. Oh, yes, there's going to be food at this event. How many like that idea? But how many know that you have to prepare food for how many people are coming? And it's really important that we actually know how many people are coming so we can actually prepare the meals for you. So the Christmas banquet, for example, we want to encourage you to actually secure your tickets. It's going to be a great evening. And, uh, you know, a lot of times people wait for the last minute. How many know it's really unfair to our kitchen staff to figure out how much food to prepare. We'd like to be able to do that ahead of time. Same thing with the ladies' event. So if you're gonna go to this ladies' event next next Monday night, uh, please register right away because they're gonna prepare food for you at that event. Isn't that beautiful? How many kind of enjoy this? We're starting to get together again and relating to one another. I believe that it's really important as a community of faith that we build meaningful relationships with each other and if you study the Bible, there's a lot of food involved. Actually, one day we're going to be sitting at a, at a marriage feast of us, the church, with Christ, our bridegroom. It's the marriage feast of the Lamb. So we know there's a lot of food mentioned. So I'm going to encourage you in that. And then uh, the, young, uh, the families in our church, uh, Pastor Brenda wants to tell you, she's giving you an amazing deal. She's talked to her kitchen And on next Sunday, if you'll come with your kids, they're going to do a little training equipping event for the parents. But they're going to provide a chili lunch for you for $10 for your entire family. I don't think you can beat that price. Everybody, that's amazing. So uh, the only caveat or catch is you have to go to that event, okay? So while some of us are in the cafe, you're going to be in another part of the church building eating that lunch and being equipped to help minister to your own children. Okay, I'm going to have you stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer. And we're going to ask God to do uh, a powerful work in our service today. I believe that God wants to speak into our lives. And he's an initiating God. Isn't that beautiful? We're going to see that today when we watch what Jesus is doing. Because actually, who is Jesus? He's actually God in the flesh, and we're going to see what happens in two different stories this morning. So Father, I pray today that you will speak into our lives. One of the beautiful prayers of Paul the Apostle was that uh, as God's people, we can get to know you better, but maybe we don't even know you. Maybe we don't even know what's missing in our life. And I pray right now, Father, that you would open the eyes of our spiritual understanding that we will really connect with you today in a way maybe we never have before. I also pray for us, maybe we've grown up in church, maybe we've heard the message, but I believe, Lord, that there's a, a necessity of your spirit to speak inside of our human spirit and that there's an interaction that occurs. And I pray today that that's exactly what will happen, that we will not be just talking about God today, but that we will be hearing your voice speaking into our innermost being. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. A number of years ago, I read the story, and I want to include it this morning. uh, Ann Kimo wrote a book called It's Incredible. And in the story, she tells of Mary. uh, And Mary's story is really fascinating. Uh, When people talk to Mary about forgiveness... 
she understands it. Married at 17 years old, that's quite young. You know, it just seemed in her mind this was the perfect match and everything was going great. She was pregnant with her first child until she discovered that her husband was involved in multiple affairs. It was so crushing and devastating. As a matter of fact, uh, the day before the baby was born, David, her husband, was riding his motorcycle and was struck by a car and was rushed to the hospital. He lost a limb. His leg was amputated. And out of that experience, there grew a bitterness in his heart. And so when she brought the baby home, you know, his, his level of anger and bitterness knew no bounds. He even threatened to kill the baby if it wouldn't stop crying. He was just out of control. He was threatening her life. Finally, she felt like for the safety of herself and her child, she fled the home. Later on, she found a place to live. She started working in a restaurant. And after a while, there was a police officer that kept coming to this restaurant, and she developed a relationship with him. And even though they, he was married, uh, she, she, was, she, was engaged, she was, got emotionally entangled with him, and before long, she discovered she was pregnant with his child. She knew it was the wrong thing to do, but she decided for the sake of his marriage that she'd move away. She found a, a little duplex, and so while she was in this duplex, she noticed that neighbors on the other side were working on the fence. So she went out back there and decided to get acquainted with this young family. And in the course of the conversation, they mentioned that they had to leave to go to a softball game from their church. And she asked them which church and invited herself to church. Of course, this couple was kind of shocked. You know, most people, you know, were afraid to invite them. She was inviting herself. So they told her, sure, come on with us. And off she went. They came to this little congregation. And that's when Mary discovered Jesus. She heard the story, she understood it, she received this amazing gift of forgiveness, and this congregation just took her under their wing. She knew she needed to get ahead, she decided to finish school, she was taking night classes, trying to make ends meet. How many know, being a single mother, two children, you know, challenging moment. She went on welfare. Before she knew it, 15 months had gone by. And then one day, Larry, this policeman, found her, and in a moment of vulnerability, she succumbed, became pregnant again, child number three. Now she's disgraced. She, she feels such shame because she knows that what she's done is totally wrong, and she doesn't know how she's gonna face people, her family, her church family, and so in desperation, she goes to her bathroom and starts taking every pill she can find. But in the process of doing that, suddenly, she sensed God's presence. She began to think of a word, the words to the song that they had sang the week uh, not too long ago, and it just came flooding into her mind. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And there in her bathroom, she sensed this amazing love and peace and realizing God's forgiveness in spite of her sin and failure. He loved her, he forgave her, and she went back to this church and discovered the people there forgave her and loved her. And eventually, to make a long story short, she did find uh, another gentleman who loved her and married her, and they created a Christ-centered home. How many know that every person who actually comes to know Jesus in a personal way 
has an amazing story. I would even argue every human being on the planet has an amazing story. But something happens when Jesus comes into our lives. Something happens when we have an encounter with him. And that's what I want to talk about today. You see, in John's gospel, we have two incredible encounter stories with Jesus that gives us, I believe, the extent to which God works in reaching out to us as human beings. It's, it's very moving. This first story is really, uh, it's a story of contrast. I mean, the Bible loves to do that. And John's giving us this amazing contrast between these two people. The first is the story of a, religious, a Jewish religious leader, a man who comes to Jesus at night. The second story is the story of a Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at high noon. Uh, really, the, the Jewish people are such that, uh, you know, in a place where most Jewish people would avoid, the place that's called Samaria. We're gonna talk a little bit about what was really going on at that hour. In her case, she was in such bad shape, she was even an outcast to her own community. And what we discover in their encounters with Jesus is that they both of them finally found what was missing in their lives. And I'm gonna talk about that because I'm convinced that every human being that's created is created with a void. There's, there's kind of a spiritual void in our lives. There's an emptiness, but we don't always identify it as such. And so then we begin to move on in our lives and we're trying to fill this emptiness in our soul with activity and relationships and we're trying to you know, find meaning and purpose and success and whatever it takes to sort of make us feel uh, a sense of identity and who we really are. And we're, we're craving and looking for this thing and we're gonna see this. These two, I think these two lives are representatives of two groups of people. You know, the, there's a group of people who live what, what we would call an immoral life. And, and some of them feel like they're beyond the scope of God's forgiveness. They feel like, you know, I'm such a bad person. You know, why in the world could God even care about a person like me? I just do, I, I'm just living my own life, doing my own thing. And there are many people who have no regard for God. But I want to point out to you today that God is searching for people like this. And we're going to find that out in this story. The second uh, element is the moral person. You know, these are the people who live a good life. These are the people who, many of them are satisfied with their lives and they don't, there's a sense of self-satisfaction and yet they're aggressively achieving and, you know, doing all that they can to somehow, you know, make themselves feel better. And I'm gonna talk about why even the most moral person still needs a savior this morning. And I want you to hear why that's necessary. And we're gonna look at it in the life of Nicodemus. So let's take a look at these two encounters. And the first one is the insufficiency of being a good person. I know this is the most challenging thing for people because I've met many people. I, I know people personally. You know, sometimes I'll, say, I'll have people say to me, you know, pastor, I'm a Christian, but my neighbor is not a Christian and they live a better life than I do. You know, they're, they're actually nicer people. You know, I can, and we've all met the people like this. They're actually nicer and, and, and more caring. And sometimes you wonder, okay, who's the Christian here? You know what I'm saying? So there are good people out there, lots of good people out there. So those are the people I think sometimes are the most difficult to understand their need for God because they don't see it until something happens in their lives, until there's a, a, a situation that occurs. I wrote down they're satisfied with themselves and their lives. But meanwhile, there's still an emptiness and a longing. 
I was chatting with someone this week. They said, you know, all my life I was, you know, trying to fill this emptiness in my life. You know, I had an amazing family. I was successful in everything I did. And yet there was something missing in my life. And then I found Jesus. And then everything else paled in comparison because I found the missing piece that actually met the need in my soul. As a matter of fact, I think it's interesting that Augustine, uh, who was a brilliant you know, fourth century theologian, but before that he was a rhetorician. In other words, he was a, a university teacher and, and a brilliant, he was preparing people for government positions. Brilliant man. Uh, he had a hard time with Christianity at first because his mother was a Christian, he wanted nothing to do with it. I think there's a lot of people like that. They said, you know, I, I, maybe it was because they, they felt pushed, it was pushed towards them or whatever. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, he was resisting it. But then one day he recognized his own place of brokenness in his life and he cried out to God. And then he wrote these, this powerful word. Our, he says, our souls are restless until we find our rest in God alone. Isn't that an amazing statement? And so he recognized this peace that flooded into his life, this hope that came into his soul. So let's take a look here at Nicodemus, this religious political leader of the nation of Israel. And the fact that he came to Jesus and confessed that you know Jesus obviously had come from God because of all of the signs that were pointing to a heaven-sent person. And as a Pharisee, this is a religious sect. We'll talk about who they are in a minute. We know that he was deeply concerned about God and he was concerned, this particular Pharisee was concerned about knowing God or knowing, because he knew a lot about God, but there was, he knew there was something missing in his life. So I think there's a difference between you know, going to Bible college or seminary and studying and learning about God, but you could actually do all of that and still not know God. And that happens over and over again. You know, it's, it's one thing to know about God, but it's a whole different story to know him personally, to have a relationship with God on a personal level. That is so critical. So let's pick up the story in John's gospel here. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, that's a fancy title, Jewish title for teacher. We know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one can perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So even in these two verses, we have a brief introduction to who Nicodemus is. And first of all, he's a Pharisee. So who, who are the Pharisees? Well, they're a religious sect in the Jewish uh, religion. You see, we, we just assume everybody that's Jewish thinks the same way. It's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, I wrote a major paper on the different uh, sects in Judaism in the first century. There's Sadducees, Essenes, the Essenes, Pharisees, obviously the followers of Jesus. So there's different groups of people thinking differently about God, just like there is today. And now the Pharisees, they were not an aristocratic people like the Sadducees. The Sadducees were kind of like the social uppers, Right? These guys were primarily the merchants or the trading class of their day. We would, we would say they're the business people in our day. And though fewer in number than the Sadducees in the first century, Jewish historian Josephus, who, by the way, was a Pharisee. People don't know that. He actually studied all these different religious groups, and he became a Pharisee. He tells us there were about 6,000 Pharisees in his day. 
But this small group of Jewish people exerted a huge influence over what we would call the common Jewish person. They had undue influence. They affected the way people felt. They, they basically, you know, were very vocal about their viewpoint and they were influencing people's religious thoughts. And some of their religious thoughts were founded not only on scripture, but on oral tradition. And Jesus actually had run-ins with the Pharisee when you read the gospel because Jesus would say things like, oh, by the way, you guys, you know, are doing these things, these oral traditions, but by doing them, you're negating God's actual law. So you, you think you're getting close to God, but you're actually doing things that are taking you away from God. Isn't that powerful? So he wasn't making friends with a lot of the Pharisees. So the fact that Nicodemus came to Jesus was a big deal. It's probably why he came at night, many people believe, because not only was he a Pharisee, but he was a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the parliament of that day. It was right underneath the Roman government. Rome had taken over the country, but they let, the, they let them self-govern on political, some political and mostly religious issues. And so this body was the ruling group of people over the nation, and he was a member of it. Now, in the Sanhedrin, there was actually more Sadducees in that Sanhedrin than there were Pharisees, but Nicodemus was one of them. The fact that Nicodemus knew that you know, there was a lot of questions about who Jesus was because when Jesus came on the scene, literally thousands of people were listening to him. How many know that poses a threat to any sort of leader? You know, if you have somebody on the scene right now speaking and all of a sudden in Canada, we have what, 30, what, how many million? 38 million people in our country, something like that. Can you imagine if thousands of people are starting, you know, let's say millions of people are listening to a voice uh, that, that poses a threat to a lot of people. Jesus was posing a threat to the religious establishment. But Nicodemus was open-minded. He recognized something unusual about Jesus because he had probably gone and heard him in the daytime or seen him or heard about some of the miracles he was doing and you know, you could not, you know, you, they were attested. They, they saw what was going on. People who had been blind now were seeing. People who couldn't hear could hear. People who were crippled from birth, we're now walking. I mean, it's hard to disprove that something is going on here and it's not normal. It was supernatural in nature. And so he comes to Jesus at night and, and he's, uh, he's basically, um, well, you know, he was struggling a little bit, wanted some answers. And I think sometimes we struggle too by coming to Jesus because we're afraid of what other people might think of us. See, Nicodemus knew that if he became a follower of Jesus, he'd probably lose his seat in the Sanhedrin. That would be the end of it. Actually, his peers would shun him aside. There was a sense of social loss he was concerned about, but he took a risk, and he went to Jesus. And from an eternal perspective, it was the most important decision in action he ever made because it totally changed his life. As you keep reading through the Gospels, you start realizing Nicodemus actually becomes a silent follower of Jesus and eventually becomes more open as time goes along. You know, you and I have to make those decisions as well. Mark tells us this, and Jesus is speaking these words. He says, no one who has left home, brothers, sisters, mothers, father, or children, or feels for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and feels along with persecutions. Why did he add that? Uh, 
and in the age to come, eternal life. Well, he knew that there would be hostility towards being a follower of Christ. So Nicodemus uh, made a confession that he recognized Jesus as a teacher sent from God. But he knew something was still missing in his life and something about his understanding of God. He wanted to, there's something going on here and he wanted to get it. And so Jesus says to him, very interesting, you know, he says this. He's gonna explain something to Nicodemus that's gonna shock him. You know, sometimes God will shock us. Sometimes God will say things that will throw us. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus said to him, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Another translation says, born from above. Jesus is gonna explain what he means by this. Now, to be, uh, to be born again means to have a new beginning. Now, Nicodemus, you have to understand something. When we read this, and we read his remarks, we think, well, what's wrong with this guy? He just seems very uh, tied into the physical, and Jesus is talking, obviously, about a spiritual thing, because, but Nicodemus knew this. The Jewish teachers were teaching that a proselyte, a proselyte who embraced Judaism was like a newborn child. In other words, it was bringing them into a new world and giving them a new identity. So when Jesus uh, said, you must be born again, this is Nicodemus' response. He's like shocked. He's, he's basically t- hearing Jesus tell him, you gotta start over again. Now, how many know when you're an older person and you've been walking in a certain way and you're set in your patterns and you've believed that you've been in the right and you're one of the leaders of this religious group and Jesus goes, no, you gotta hit the reset button, start all over again. You have to become a proselyte. You have to have a new beginning. You gotta start over just like a new child. That was a shocking statement to him. So then he says this, How can someone be born when they're old, Nicodemus, that surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? I don't think he was that far out where he was thinking, you know, strictly in terms of a a physical experience. I think what he was saying is, come on, Jesus, you're not expecting me to start all over again. And Jesus is basically saying, yeah, I am expecting you to start all over again. But not, not that he wouldn't know the Bible, but it would be like, you, you need this encounter, you need to have a reset happening in your life. Uh, so Nicodemus basically uh, did not understand what Jesus was talking about at all. At this point, he could not believe that a new birth was a requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God and was amazed by the very category. He just couldn't believe he had to start over again. That, that was such a shock to his system. Uh, Jesus' response to Nicodemus regarding God's kingdom and, and the way in which a person enters his kingdom, it certainly wasn't through morality. It wasn't strictly through a religious approach. As a matter of fact, Jesus answered and said, very, very, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The spirit gives birth to the spirit. Now, this is going to help us because some of us have been listening to me preach in Jeremiah. We haven't got to the chapter, but Jesus is going to refer to something. As a matter of fact, uh, D.A. Carson, biblical scholar, says this, when water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it habitually refers to a renewal or a cleansing, especially when it's found in conjunction with spirit, water and spirit. So Jesus is now going to refer to something Nicodemus was aware of. 
Most important of all is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 37. Actually, Jeremiah is going to talk about this too. What they're going to talk about is the necessity for people to have a new heart in order to follow God. You see, our natural inclination as human beings is not to obey God. It's a shocking statement, but it's true. If you, if you talk to people, most people will tell you, I have no interest in spiritual things, or I have no interest in, in, in really knowing God and coming to know him on his terms. We all want to have God on our terms, but this is so radical. What God is basically saying to us is that he wants to bring about a transformation of the human heart. You know, he, you know Jeremiah will use terms like, you guys have a heart of rock. You guys are like dead. You know, you're, you're, you're just, you're in a spiritually dead condition. And what God wants to do is create a new covenant. Actually, Jeremiah will talk about a new covenant where God's spirit will live inside of you. In other words, God says, I'm gonna write my laws, not, not on a, a, a stone tablet out here, not, not externally, but I'm gonna write my laws inside of your soul and I'm gonna put my spirit inside there so all of a sudden you're gonna become a brand new person and your, even your desires are gonna change. That's when you know you've been born again. You've been so changed from the inside that the things that you once hated, you now love, or the things you once were indifferent to, you now embrace, and the things that you once loved, now you look at that and go, that's so empty. It's so meaningless. Why would I even want to do that anymore? You see, I've been filling my life with things that's not bringing spiritual life to myself, and I recognize that now because God's spirit is now living inside of me. I know when a person becomes a follower of Christ because their their appetites in life change. Their desires in life change. The Bible says, for it is God who's working in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's the work of the spirit of God. And unless that spirit of God is living inside of us, we're not born again. And it doesn't matter how many good things we do because, you know, no matter how much we do, it's not what we do that brings salvation or eternal life to us. It's what Christ did for us. That's why he left heaven. That's why he came to earth. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose again from the dead so he could conquer our sin and move us from a place of death to give us eternal life. And so that when you and I stand before Almighty God, we don't come because we've been so good. We come standing in what Christ has done for us. He's now given us his righteousness and removed our sinfulness. That's the gospel, and we need to understand that. Jesus is saying that the spiritual birth is not a physical one. It's the work of the Spirit. He goes on to say, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is, everyone born of the Spirit. Now, how many know wind, you don't see wind, you see the effects of wind. How many say that's true? You're seeing the effects of it. Now, if it's a very strong wind, every once in a while you can hear it because its its effects again are impacting us. He goes on to say here, how can this be? That's Nicodemus' response to this. He says, you're Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things. He says, you know, you're supposed to be teaching people this stuff and you don't even get it. He's kind of challenging him. So when we try to grasp spiritual truth with our natural understanding, We don't get it. It's spiritually discerned, it says. Paul writes that. 
You see, sometimes people say, well, pastor, you know, I read the Bible, I get nothing out of it. You know, then you gotta ask yourself the question, is the spirit of God working in my soul? Because the moment I have God's spirit at work in my life, the Holy Spirit inside of me is gonna start revealing to me things in the scripture. It's gonna start making more sense. It's gonna, it's gonna start coming alive. And so, you know, it, people could say, how can you keep reading the same book over and over? I read the Bible every day. How can you keep doing that? I'm gonna tell you why. It's a unique book. Why is it so unique, Pastor? Because it's God-inspired. And because God's spirit helped create it and actually motivated and inspired these human writers to put these ideas down, when you and I, the human reader, in the power of the spirit are reading it, he's now speaking to our spirits. And it becomes living words, not just mere words on a page. And it becomes life-giving. It becomes life-sustaining. It's very powerful. Jesus goes on, very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. So Jesus is now speaking on the relationship as he's a leader. You guys are not getting what I'm putting down because you guys are not spiritually alive. That's why it's not becoming, making sense to you. Uh, and then he says this, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I start speaking of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Uh, what, what, does he, what does he mean there? What he's saying is, Jesus is saying, I'm from heaven. And he uses the designation, I'm the son of man. Now, for most of us, we, we, you know, 80 times this term, son of man, is used in the gospels. That's a lot. And when people look at this term, they go, what does it mean to be the son of man? You don't understand this unless you understand the Old Testament. And in the book of Daniel, it talks about the son of man coming in the clouds. It's actually a picture of the Messiah. It's actually the picture of God himself coming to earth in the form of a man. And it's a very powerful statement. As a matter of fact, when Jesus said this before the Sanhedrin, they crucified him for it because he was making a powerful declaration there. But most of us, when we read the Bible, we don't get that. You have to understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying some very powerful things. Then I love what he does next. So then Jesus uses now a very familiar story to explain why he's here on the planet. This is what he says in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Okay, we're gonna come back to the story in a minute. Everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So what story is Jesus talking about? Well, you have to understand that these Jewish people knew their Bibles. Nicodemus knew the story. It's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and it says, but the people grew impatient on the way. This is after they'd been delivered from Egypt. They were in the wilderness, and they were upset. None of us ever get upset. None of us ever get impatient. This whole group of people were getting impatient. They were going through a wilderness and there wasn't a lot of food and water and they were frustrated. So they spoke out against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water and we detest this miserable food. See, they were getting this manna from heaven. Every day God was raining down food on them but it was the same thing every day, you know? And they were uptight. You know, how many times, how many different ways can you fix manna? You know, you can boil it, you know, I don't know, fry it. Who knows? They were not happy. It says, then the Lord 
sent venomous snakes among them and they bit the people and many Israelites died. Well, let me tell you something. It's a deadly thing to be complaining. Anybody catch on? So all the complainers, take note. Watch where you step. <laughs> it's true. We need to be a, have a heart of gratitude. You know, the people came to Moses and said, hey, we've, we've sinned I, when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then God gave them a solution to their problem. It says here, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. How many go, very interesting prescription. Anybody think this kind of interesting? You know, if you just look at this snake, you know, a, and it, Moses, he did it. Moses made a bronze snake. He put it on a pole and then, when anyone was bitten by a snake and they looked at the bronze snake, they lived. How many can understand that there's, there's nothing magical going on here? It's an act of faith. If I look to this, what God's told me to do, if I obey God and I look to what he tells me, I will have life. I will be spared the snake's bite. You know what it is? It's, it's a picture. It's a picture of something. God was trying to teach them a lesson. Now he we pull this lesson, we bring it to our time. Not just to the first century, but to our time. And what are we learning? Well, the snake represents, you know, sin. The snake represents sin. Remember in the garden? It was the snake that tempted the husband and the wife, and they sinned. And so what is he saying? He's saying, Jesus is going to say to him, Nicodemus, he said, this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. What is he talking about? Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. I am going to become sin. I'm going to become, I'm going to take on the sin of the entire world. I'm going to take on all of the sin of humanity, and God's anger is going to be directed at me instead of at people. He's going to deflect. He's going to be the scapegoat. He's going to take uh, the penalty for our sin. But if you and I, by faith, look up to Christ, we will be set free from our state of death. That's what Jesus is talking about here. You know, so what is Jesus telling this moral person, this religious person, that all of us need a savior? All of us have sinned. All of us need to look to Jesus for salvation from sin in order to receive eternal life. Religious tradition alone won't, won't get us there. Jesus said we must be born again. We must be born from above. We must be born of God's spirit. But let me move on to the second story. The hope for those who believe that they're beyond hope. You know, there are a lot of people, they feel like they're a lost cause. They've gone too far. God could never forgive them. How could God love me? But you know, God cares about broken people. You know, some people feel such deep guilt and shame. And I remember reading somewhere, and I, I, I'd give credit to this, but I don't know where I read this. But I believe it's true. Do you know there's a big difference between guilt and shame? You see... Guilt is feeling bad for what we've done. Shame is feeling bad for who we are. There's a lot of people, they don't only feel bad for what they've done. There are people who feel bad because of who they are. That's shame. That's painful. How many here have ever experienced shame? I got my hand up. Anybody else? Okay, let's be honest. Here's the good news. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just take your sin he didn't just take your guilt, he took your shame. You and I can leave without guilt and shame. 
It's so profound and powerful. I love this about Jesus. You know, sometimes we can, you know, a lot of people are self-medicating today because they feel bad about what they've done or they feel bad about who they are, and they're self-medicating. We have a lot of self-medicating people. They're trying to escape themselves because they feel so bad because of who they are. I want to give you the good news today. If you come to Jesus, he will take that pain, that shame, that guilt, that brokenness from your life. He will begin to rebuild your soul. He will begin to bring healing into your broken places. When I became a believer, I was 21 years old, I started attending a church kind of similar to our church. And I started coming, and I'll tell you, for about a year and a half, it just seemed like every time the pastor spoke, the word of God, it felt like the spirit of God was taking those words and he was healing the broken places of my soul. He was mending my brokenness. I could remember many Sundays, just you know, tears running down my cheeks. It was, there, was, there was such a work of grace that God wanted to accomplish in my life. Do you know why I'm so committed to this? Because it's happened to me. It works. God brings healing to the brokenhearted. Because it's good news, folks. This is such beautiful news. He can take, no matter how good we are or how bad we are, he can grab us and transform our lives. I love what the prophet Isaiah says. Come now, let us settle, settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they're gonna be as white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Let's pick up the story of a woman who lived in a small town called Sychar. Bible says now he had to go through Samaria. Well, this is a very fascinating statement. Jesus felt a compulsion from his father to go through Samaria. By the way, when, when Jesus came to earth, he, became, he was a Jew. But all the Jews avoided Samaria. And I'm gonna explain to you why they did that. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground. Jacob had given his son Joseph. And Joseph's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well and it was about noon. How many already get the contrast? A man, a woman, night, noon. Are you picking it up? A moral sinner and an immoral sinner, we're gonna see. It's done on purpose. It's done so that you and I get the extent of God's forgiving power. So who were these Samaritans? Well, they were a mixed race of people. They had multiple ethnic backgrounds, including Jewish. Because you see, during the, uh, the uh, Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians, what they would do is displace people. So they conquered the northern 10 tribes and they relocated a lot of them, but not all of them. They left the lower class people still in the north. Then he took the more aristocratic leaders from some of these other tribes and parts of the world and brought them and dumped them over here. And guess what happened? They started intermarrying. And their religious ideas got syncretistic. They took some of the, you know, Already these guys had some distorted ideas, but it just got worse, okay? So they had some right ideas and some wrong ideas. And so these people from a number of different people groups relocated to the land of Israel during this Assyrian Empire. They intermarried with the lower class of people from the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And there was an incredible racial and religious tension between Jews and Samaritans. And so the Jews would actually avoid Samaria, How's that? They'd travel right around it. It was actually faster to go through Samaria than it was to go around. But you know what? How many know when you have tensions with group racial tensions and religious tensions, you're gonna avoid people. 
That's exactly what was going on here. Does everybody pick up the pace now? So when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus was sitting there by himself, tired from the journey. And he said to her, will you give me a drink? See, the disciples had gone into town to buy food, so he's all by himself. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman? How can you ask me for a drink? And then we have this parenthetical thought added, excuse me, to the scripture. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She was shocked. First of all, in those days, you know, a strange man's not gonna talk to a strange woman unless it's the wrong kind of relationship. And number two, she could see by his clothing he was a rabbi, a teacher, a Jewish teacher, and he's, he's talking to her? This is like blowing her fuses in her mind. Like this is not should be happening. Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Boy, this sounds interesting. So what is he doing? He's piquing her curiosity. Sir, the woman said, you've nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where are you gonna get this living water from? She's, on, she's now on a physical level. Everybody see that? She's, there's no spiritual thing going on, but she's gonna get spiritual in a minute. She says, because remember she said, Jesus said, if you knew who was talking to you, he's raising a question. Do you know who I am? She goes, are you greater than our father Jacob? You better believe it, he is. Who gave us the well and drank from it himself as also did his sons and his livestock. In other words, she's locked into religious tradition. This is like our religious background and heritage. Are you greater than Jacob? How many know Jacob was quite a character? We're comparing Jacob with Jesus? Come on now. Jesus said, everyone who's gonna drink from this water will be thirsty again. Well, that's true. You drink some water, you're gonna be thirsty again. But then whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Hey, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. (laughs) I don't wanna keep coming to this well drawing water at the heat of the day. I want to have a a water that's going to quench the thirst. Jesus said, well, go call your husband and come back. And she said, well, I have no husband. You're right, he said, you have no husband. The fact is you've had five of them and the man you have now is not your husband. And what you said is quite true. Now, how many know about this time it gets a little unnerving? Because a total stranger is now reading your life story. How many get a picture? This could, how many would be a little unnerved? Somebody you'd never met before starts telling you stuff about you that you know, you know they have no idea. She's starting to, there's a lot of going on in her mind right now. I like what uh, Lawrence Crabb writes. He's a Christian counselor. He says, you know, the essence of encouragement is exposure without rejection. What was Jesus doing? He was basically saying, We need to get to the root of the problem. You're broken. You've been searching for this missing piece in your life through relationships and you haven't found it because what you're looking for, only God can fill. And I believe that's true in all of our lives. We're trying to find love from human beings who are, can only give you and I, what is it, a qualified kind of love. Nobody in this room loves unconditionally except God. And he is in this room. When we realize that God or others still love us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our failings, yes, in spite of our sinfulness, we can be free to accept the problems and even have the courage to face them and overcome them. And I do believe that's true. So God 
cares so deeply for us, he sends his son for us in order to free us from our alienation and distance from God. Isn't that beautiful? So he's he's gonna draw this woman into the kingdom of God. Now, the woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, it's just Hebrews Messiah, Christ is Greek. Woman says, I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, this is gonna shock all of us. This is the only time I'm aware of that Jesus ever says to somebody, I'm he, I'm the Messiah. And he says it to a Samaritan woman who's had a miserable past. Then leave, and then it says, he says, yes, I am he. I'm the one who's speaking to you, am he. And then she left the water jar. The woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And what was the conclusion after meeting Jesus? He said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Wow. You know, I was just thinking about this as we're closing right now. It strikes me, we all need a savior. From the most moral person to to the most broken person. Even Mary, the mother of Jesus, You know what she said when she found out she was gonna carry the Messiah? She said this, my soul glorifies in the Lord and my Savior rejoices in God, my Savior. Jesus is Mary's Savior, a moral person. And then I think of another person, the man that was a thief. Two of them were hanging beside Jesus on the cross. Jesus is speaking to the crowd and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This thief had been reviling Jesus with his partner, and when he heard those words, something happened. He was smitten in his heart, and he realized here was a man that was, had no reason to be dying on a cross. He had done nothing wrong, and he recognized it. And he said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says, I'm willing to forgive you. Even at that last moment, that man made it into heaven. I'm gonna have a stand as we close right now in prayer. I'm just, I'm just trying to bring it, this home to us today. You can be a very good person. You can know a lot of things about God, but you can be like Nicodemus and you don't know him. Remember what I said, when the Spirit of God comes inside of you, he's gonna change your appetites. He's gonna change your desires. He's gonna give you an ability to understand spiritual truth that you could never understand before. Or maybe you're here today and you said, I'm so bad, Pastor, if you only knew how messed up I really am. There's no way in the world God could love me. There's no one beyond the reach of God's love. He loves every human being. So there's this big gulf between this good person and this very bad person but everybody in between. We fit in there somewhere, guys. We all fit in there somewhere. He is the savior of our entire world. He is the savior. You know, I've traveled. I've preached to Hindus. I've preached to Muslims. I've preached to people that have no faith and don't have any belief whatsoever, but they all need a savior. That's true of everyone in this room. We all need a savior. And the question is, who is your savior? Some of you in this room, you might say, I'm my own savior. I I take care of myself, thank you very much. 
But you can't face death alone. You're not gonna overcome that one. I don't care how great you are, you're gonna come to the end. You're gonna, you're gonna eventually begin to fall apart physically, emotionally, mentally, in every which way. It's coming. You need a savior. I don't care how great you are, you need a savior. I don't care how good you are this morning, you need a savior. I don't care how bad you are this morning, you need a savior. And so with every head bowed this morning, do you know him? Do you know this Jesus who changes hearts? Have you met this Jesus that can literally transform your life? Have you met him? Have you been born again? Have you been born by God's spirit? Have you been born from above? Is that you this morning? God's speaking to hearts today, I believe that. He's calling you out of your world into his world. He's calling you out of a kingdom that was leaving you in blindness spiritually into a kingdom of light that will make you understand. He's calling you this morning. Is that you? Every head bowed. If it's you, raise your hand. God's speaking to you right now saying, you need a savior. You need a savior. Anyone? Okay. Right. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you this morning. Even as we respond to you, we say, Lord, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Lord, as you hear the cry of the human heart, I pray that you would invade our lives with your Holy Spirit, that we might be born anew, we might be born again, that you might change our heart of hearts, Father, and make us more like you. That you would allow us to walk on this journey of life walking with you. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.